but it's a curiosity as to where we are, what we are. The existence, the physical universe, is basically playful. Welcome to the Curious Humans podcast. I'm your host, Johnny Miller. Hello, Curious Humans. I've decided to republish this conversation with David White because I found myself revisiting his timeless book, Consolations, and rediscovering wisdom that somehow felt really appropriate for these times. And his book has remained within arm's reach of my bedside ever since I first discovered it about five years ago. David's work has ratcheted open my mind to a whole new perspective on the definitions of words like ambition, courage, or heartbreak. And I'm not even sure how to properly describe exactly what it is that he does. On paper, he is an acclaimed poet, TED speaker, writer, and philosopher. But to my mind, after having spent an incredible week with him on the Irish Atlantic coastline for one of his walking tours, I feel like he's a, just like a genuine elder with deep philosophical curiosity and a gift for weaving together these inner and outer worlds that he calls the conversational nature of reality. We recorded this conversation over four years ago in his cottage by a roaring fire. And it's interesting for me to reflect back on this as it was, I think it was only the third podcast conversation that I'd, I'd ever done. And you can probably hear how nervous I was in the, especially the early part of the conversation. But what I hope also comes across is the way that David's voice kind of casts a spell that puts people listening, and myself included, into this state of, of reverie and, and just complete undiluted attention. It's a really wide-ranging conversation, and towards the end we cover some really interesting ground on the questions he believes we're living our way into as a society, and how childhood is, in his words, the act of growing older, whilst adulthood is the act of growing younger back into the body, into our birthright, visionary experience of the world. Without further ado, please enjoy this gorgeous conversation with the eloquent weaver of words, David White. I made the decision to work with sponsors for this podcast, and there are two main reasons for this. The first is that it helps me dedicate more time and resources to having deep dive conversations like this one, and hopefully growing the show. And the second is that there are a few companies that have honestly made a big difference in my life. And since I consider them to be just such a huge value add, I'm genuinely excited to talk about what they offer, and I hope they'll be useful to you as well. First up is Inside Tracker. One of the things that I've changed my mind on in the past year or so is the value of getting blood panels taken on a regular basis, ideally every six months, according to Dr. Peter Atia. This is opposed to waiting until you have an actual health issue. Inside Tracker tests your blood, your DNA, and they basically provide clear science-backed recommendations around nutrition, exercise, supplements, and lifestyle recommendations. They've also recently added hormone testing alongside a bunch of other really important biomarkers that aren't typically included in traditional blood panels, and APOB is a good example. And for myself, despite generally feeling pretty great, 
my most recent set of results show that I have some pretty major work to do to reduce levels of inflammation. So I'll be following some of their dietary and supplement recommendations to hopefully address this. So I really recommend making this something that you make time for at least once or twice per year. And you can save 20% at insidetracker.com forward slash curious humans. That's insidetracker.com forward slash curious humans. Next up, we have The Plunge. I reached out to the founder of The Plunge, Ryan, after hearing his personal story on Danny Miranda's podcast. And I've shared many times how getting in icy cold water every day helps me to move through some pretty intense grief in the past. And it taught me what it meant to surrender. And these days I use their plunge pretty much every single day. It's, it's basically like a high stakes meditation or a mirror to my own internal state. And the plunge team have done a phenomenal job architecting what I really consider to be the best cold plunge in the world. And it doesn't get grimy, unlike the, the converted chest freezers that I used to use. And for optimal health benefits, I recommend doing this deliberate cold exposure for about 11 minutes per week in total. And if you're interested, you can save $150 on their full unit at plunge.com forward slash curious. That's plunge.com forward slash curious. And this episode is brought to you by the one and only Nervous System Mastery. This is my flagship five-week bootcamp designed to equip you with evidence-backed protocols to cultivate calm, conquer reactivity, and build emotional regulation. Our fourth cohort will be running in April 2024, and applications are open right now. And my sense is that if this conversation and others like it on the podcast resonate with you, then you'd likely be a great fit for the upcoming cohort. This curriculum represents my attempt to distill everything that I've learned in recent years about how to create the conditions for our nervous systems flourishing. It's run in an intensive cohort-based way, since this is in my experience the most efficient way to not only learn the information, but also embody the protocols in your everyday life. Previous students have shared how taking part not only improved their sleep, the quality of their relationships, but also tap into deeper states of joy, clarity, and confidence in their lives. We've had over 750 students complete this training, and many have said it's been the most impactful thing they've ever done for their personal growth. So if you're intrigued at all, you can find out more details and apply to join the next cohort at nsmastery.com. That's nsmastery.com. I'm sitting here with the poet and philosopher David White uh, here in Ballyvaughan, and I'd like to begin this conversation by saying a heartfelt thank you for this meticulously crafted pilgrimage through the Irish coastline. And I think just kind of the look in, in people's eyes here, as well as being slightly exhausted from all the walking, it just says how rich this week has been. So I just want to say thank you. And the question that I usually like to begin conversations with is to ask for you to cast your mind back just, just a few years to when you were a child. And do you feel like you were intensely curious growing up? And if so, what were you curious about growing up in the Yorkshire Dales? I was uh, intensely curious and always looking both to the horizon of the geography around me, mm. which was actually West Yorkshire rather than the Yorkshire Dales, mm. the West Riding as it was called then. Mm. 
and it's actually gritstone country and moorlands and deep valleys, whereas the dales are limestone, much lighter country. Mm. And the dales were set, settled by Norse, and our area was settled by the Danes. But there was another parallel landscape at the same time, which was my mother's Ireland, which was very much alive in my imagination. Mm. And I always remember the a card that was in a drawer that I looked at for years, which had uh, hands across the water written on it, mm. and two hands shaking from Britain to Ireland. Mm. Just the shape of Ireland actually on the map was very evocative to me. Mm. It seemed almost like a person. And so those two landscapes lived in parallel was the, the present Yorkshire one and then my mother's Ireland and the arrival of Irish relatives at, at uh, frequent intervals. Mm. but also the Irish linguistic inheritance of my mother mm. and my Auntie Anne and my uh, O'Sullivan uncles was uh, very powerful. And I used to move actually more from my mother's diction to Yorkshire dialect you know, and everything in between. Mm. So uh, to this day, my accent moves quite a bit according to where I am geographically in the yeah, British Isles. Yeah, so. no, I, I get that sense. <clears throat> yeah. um, and one of these phrases that you've used uh, over and over again on this trip has been uh, genius loci, which yes. you said means the spirit of a place. Yes. And I wondered if you could just elaborate a little bit on that and kind of what that yes. means for you. Well, we tend, we tend to think of geniuses as human beings, but in the ancient world, a genius was also a place and the essential spirit of a place, genius loci. Mm as in locus, as in place, yeah, location. So it's very merciful, actually, to think about human beings in the same way as a meeting place of, of everything that's made you, from your DNA to your family inheritance, to the struggles of your family, mm. to the local dialect where you grow up, you know, whether it's in California or in, or in West Yorkshire, <laughs> and to uh, the meteorology of the place, you know, the, the light. Mm. And, you know, you're shaped into a very different uh, speaking representation of humanity growing up in mm. Yorkshire than you are in many other places in the world. Mm. And you're shaped uh, in the west of Ireland in a very different way, too. Mm. So there are two different edges, which I felt I wasn't supposed to choose between, actually, from when I was quite young. Mm. I remember when I was seven or eight years old, realizing that these two worlds collided in our house. And I also realized at the same time that I wasn't supposed to choose between them, that I was actually supposed to live in both. Mm. And I suppose that's the unspoken origin of what I call beautiful questions. Mm. That, uh, mm. We're never going to get the entirely beautiful answer, but we can always ask really beautiful questions mm. that always enlarge yeah. your horizon and your and your sense of things and your context and your yeah. understanding so yeah which is something i'd actually yeah. i'd love to kind of come back to a little bit later in the conversation and one mm. of my favorite lines in i think it's what to remember when waking mm -hmm. is what you can plan is too small for you to live yes and it feels to me very relevant i've got a, a cousin who's graduating from university in yes. a couple of weeks and i think when you're kind of standing uh, on that threshold, as you as you say, um, and kind of about to go into the world, there's that temptation to try and make fixed plans and to know exactly who you're going to be and what you're going to be doing. <clears throat> and I just wondered if you had any thoughts or maybe advice for people like her or the other, millions of other students around the world who are kind of about to 
step over that threshold into the real world, as we say. Yes. Well, I think one thing you have to realize as a student is, is how much your education system is actually narrowing and even destroying the richness of your personality. You're getting rewarded within a very narrow field of human inquiry, and that's around intellectual naming and guessing what your professors or teachers are thinking when they ask you a question. And so you actually, to begin with, what, become, what, what is a strategy for a child becomes their identity. And that's one of the tragedies of our education system. And just to understand how constrained you are and to want something else in your life is an enormous necessity, especially as our education systems have outrun their writ, really. Uh, there's no scenario in an adult life where you get told to go into a room and work by yourself for two and a half hours and not consult any other source in your life. Yeah. And yet this is what you're tested on. So just to understand how the falsity of our education systems, yeah. And there's a kind of controlled folly that you have to uh, work with in order to come out with the degree that gets you credibility in the world but not to mistake it for anything real that you might have learned, actually. And I had this <clears throat> very powerfully when I emerged with my degree in marine zoology and got to the Galapagos Islands. And that place just overwhelmed any form of Linnaean uh, classification that I'd learned about the world and overwhelmed me from the point of view of the tidal seasonal nature of reality, but also the presence of uh, mortality and death in the natural world and the way I was implicated in it. And so I left Galapagos actually with a conscious sense that I was beginning to traverse back into my early love of poetry because I instinctively felt that poetry was a more precise language than science for actually understanding the phenomenology of existence, whereas science necessarily so eliminates the I or tries to eliminate the I or creates ritual circumstances whereby you are under the illusion you eliminated the eye. You know, good poetry tries to include both what you are witnessing and the witnesser, and then create a conversation in which both are transformed, which is actually quite close to the edge of, of postmodern physics, the way that elements and electrons, you know, behave differently according to whether you're actually looking, looking at them or not. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and they, so, they're in different places simultaneously. Until so we, the way we shape our world, you know, it's a much more sort of entrancing and transporting and transfiguring experience than your educational system can actually describe. So we're constantly getting our experience of reality stepped down into these boxes. So you, you start to think the boxes are reality itself, and you wonder why you've lost your sense of joy, you wonder why you've lost your sense of enthusiasm for something that first drew you in. I was first drawn into marine zoology because I saw Jacques Cousteau's following the life of the dolphin aboard the good ship Calypso. And I wanted that life. I wanted that blue horizon in my life. And there are so many people who are drawn into disciplines, you know, where they get the life beaten out of them. If you want to kill your love of poetry, then then do a postgraduate in English <laughs> literature at a, at a good university. Yeah? When you think of the number of hoops you have to go through and the amount of money you have to pay in order to study what you want to study, you, you'd be much better if you were disciplined 
spending that time your yourself yeah yeah i completely agree and i've been thinking about this idea of kind of creating a almost a self-guided curriculum for people in these periods of transition but one of the questions that i wanted to kind of shifting gears slightly is just to talk about this book consolations which has been by my bedside for the last six months right. and in this book you've written these intriguing and nourishing definitions of everyday words and I just wanted to bring up, there were four words really that were really striking to me. And the first is, is touching on what you've just been talking about. And it's this idea of self-knowledge. And I just wanted to read a quote from here. It's the hope that a human being can achieve complete honesty and self-knowledge with regard to themselves is a fiction. Mm-hmm. And... That to me was really intriguing and quite surprising. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I just wondered if you could elaborate a bit on what you meant by that. And it should be liberating too, because mm-hmm. we carry the need to know as a, as a burden and the need to have absolute clarity mm-hmm. and to understand that we're always this frontier. If you pull in any knowledge, you know, you're just moving along the frontier and, and there's an equal amount of, of dark horizon, which moves in into your line of sight, in a sense, your, your light of unsight. Your line of not seeing yet, yeah? We're always at this edge between knowing and not knowing. So, of course, you can increase your sense of context and understanding and maturity, but it just still puts you into another conversation with a greater horizon. I have a, an essay on denial in there, and I say even the Dalai Lama is in denial. You know, there's a circle around which you, you enclose human identity in order to be able to hold a conversation, yeah? And the level of denial that the Dalai Lama is holding is way, way further out than most people. <laughs> <know it's> still, <laughs> there's only so yeah. much a human frame can actually contain and hold it within a linguistic field that another person can hold. Yeah. Hmm. Of course, when the Dalai Lama is in deep meditation and not in conversation with other human beings, then I'd say the circle is even further out. Yeah. But the necessary ability of a human being to let things flower and mature of their own, yeah? to deny the need to expurgate and describe everything too early, you know, to name too early. I have another essay in, on naming, the way human beings are always naming processes too early, you know, maturing processes. If you look at the rose, um, which is growing outside the door of this cottage, and if you try and open it even one day before its time, it will fall apart. Yeah? And we're constantly trying to open parts of ourselves that haven't fully flowered yet and not ready to come into the light. So there's an actual merciful process of denial and yet a faithful remaining with what is actually maturing and coming to light inside you at the same time. So this is different than the cynicism of denying everything that's pulling you out of your enclosed, imprisoned identity. Mm. Oh, that's beautiful. The second word is uh, is towards the end. And again, I just, I'd love to read, read a line. And it's, vulnerability is not a weakness, a passing indisposition or something that we can arrange to do without. Mm-hmm. And this is something that I think particularly as men, most of us really, I mean, we run for the hills and we spend... Yeah. A lot of our lives worrying about what other people think of us and yes. are we going to be perceived as being weak if we yeah. do show our vulnerability so 
my question is how can we how can we inhabit that yes. robust vulnerability exactly. in this world that you know is where it's perceived as weakness for half the population yes but it's interesting to think of vulnerability from its original latin meaning wound meaning simply the place where you're open to the world whether you want to be or not you know that's what you care about you were made to care that way or you learned to care that way and uh, and so it's interesting to think of it actually as a faculty we tend to think of vulnerability as as a weakness and we tend to think of it in self-indulgent terms which is me telling everyone about everything that scares me or everything i'm not happy about and instead of thinking of it as a kind of gravitational field an edge between what you know about yourself and what you don't what you know about your world and what you don't know and it's living on that frontier edge knowing that there are larger things in the world that can take you out you know it's like walking in the african bush i've done quite a bit of walking safari and it's a totally different uh, animal to use the correct metaphor <laughs> than being in a land rover you know or any kind of vehicle there are quite a few animals in the local environment that can take you out and a couple of them just by accident yeah you're in the wrong place at the wrong time so when you have that vulnerability you actually pay a scintillating kind of attention to your environment that you wouldn't if you had constructed an identity where you were under the, the illusion that you felt safe yeah there is a fellow walking at the end of the line with a rifle over his shoulder which to begin with gives you the illusion that you're safe but actually i've been in many situations where the fellow hasn't even been able to get the rifle off his shoulder before something has happened you know that's life life threatening <clears throat> yeah so to know that life will give you everything you want and nourish you and look after you and give you shelter and it will also kill you as soon as look at you and that you don't get to choose between these two qualities this is a proper apprehension of reality yes <laughs> and uh, <laughs> if you're living in florida before the before a hurricane sweeps in if you're living in california before a earthquake occurs you know mm. or you're uh, happily you know by your fireside at home before the phone rings and gives you news that someone close to you has passed away uh, uh, you can be under the illusion that you're safe yeah but the sense of robust vulnerability gives you the possibility of real joy and privilege because you realize how astonishing it is for instance just to be healthy yeah just to be healthy just to be able to be able to stand up from this chair and walk across the room there are many people in this world who'd give every penny they have to be able to do that and they can't you know just to be able to see your daughter's face just to be able to look out of the window these are actually astonishing things to perceive the color gray even on a rainy day and the privilege of blue um, on a sunny day hmm. so we tend to close down the edges of our perceptions into a blend middle shoes so that you you hold back from feeling joy because it helps you to prevent you from feeling real grief yeah. so the ability to feel real vulnerability and try and hold it in the body from where we've often tried to escape as children in order to feel that we had power over pain that we didn't know how to handle or our adult world didn't show us how to handle yeah so a lot of the adult process is walking back into the body into the wounded body that the child walked out of you know in growing into the world yeah so you could say that 
childhood is the act of growing older and adulthood is the act of growing younger <laughs> back into the body <laughs> yeah back into mm. our birthright visionary experience of mm. the world yeah mm. oh, that's beautiful yeah the child's fated to grow older into the world but as adults we have the possibility of growing younger the third word which i think is is intimately <clears throat> connected to vulnerability and what you've just been talking about is courage and if it's all right with you i'd love to ask you to read um the short highlighted passage courage is the measure of our heartfelt participation with life with another with a community a work a future courage is the measure of our heartfelt participation with life with another with a community a work a future to be courageous is not necessarily to go anywhere or to do anything except to make conscious those things we already feel deeply and then to live through the unending vulnerabilities of those consequences. To be courageous is to seat our feelings deeply in the body and in the world, to live up to and into the necessities of relationships that often already exist with things we find we already care deeply about, with a person, a future, a possibility in society, or with an unknown that begs us on, and always has begged us on. To be courageous is to stay close to the way we are made. To be courageous is to stay close to the way we are made. Mm. That's that's beautiful. Thank you. I didn't really have a have a question. I just selfishly wanted to hear you read that. <laughs> Very good. And the fourth and the final word that I wanted to touch on was right at the beginning of the book, and this one hit me really hard when I first read it and it's it's ambition yeah and the line is no matter the self-conceited importance of our labors we are all compost for worlds that we cannot yet imagine yes for me that's just such a powerful image mm -hmm. and I think back to my time in my in my 20s when I felt like I was really driven by ambition and this this urge to kind of make a dent in, yes. in what I was doing. Um, but I think more recently I've been, I guess, suspicious of that ambition and mm -hmm. where it's coming from and what drives it. So I just, I'd love to hear from you how your relationship yeah. with ambition has changed yes. and what this means to you. Yeah, I think the central dynamic underneath ambition is the wish to be seen and heard. Mm. But the way we use ambition, we then l put layers and layers of conditions on the way we should be seen and heard, and the way we should be rewarded for being seen and heard and, and appreciated. You know? But the, the central longing of a young man or a young woman to meet goals has to do with this necessity to have the interior become the exterior, you know, to become part of the world of which we're a part. So there's nothing wrong in the early stages of maturity and using the word ambition so long as you're willing to let it go once you really understand what's occurring <laughs> mm. yeah. Yeah. your work will take you places that you didn't want to go and didn't think you had to go you will have to let go of what you thought your ambitions would bring you and be humbled and be apprenticed to something much larger yeah. There's many a person who's run a business for years. They wanted to make a million you know, and they did make the million. And but years later, they realized that their needs are actually very few if they've matured. If they haven't matured, then 
then their needs may not be very few. <laughs> if they've matured, they realize they only have one pair of eyes, one place they can be, one stomach, you know, for eating. And they have actually a lot more than they actually need in order to live their life. And they uh, also realize that having employed so many people and having witnessed how many lives that they've transformed through employing people, that the business may not have been about them at all, you know. When you've witnessed, as I have with my little, I, I never went into poetry to begin an enterprise, but an enterprise accreted around me, and it, it's provided a living and, and allowed three, four, five families, you know, to raise children, to provide shelter, and uh, to live really, really good lives while doing good work. And I often stand back and say, Perhaps this wasn't about me at all, you know, perhaps it was so uh, these other people could actually join in something that they were enthusiastic and intrigued about and make a good living at the same time. So you never know who your work serves. In the old grail myth, the question you had to ask and which uh, Parsifal didn't ask when he first got into the grail castle was whom does the grail serve? You know, that's the, that's the question, whom does the grail serve? And uh, it's usually not the you that entered into the castle. <laughs> <laughs> it's someone much larger that's a kind of no, eventually a no-self. You know? And it's what's so difficult about, I think, for older men especially. Women have a much easier ability to find freedom in later life. Yeah? And we have this meme of the merry widow, you know throughout history, you know, it's because the men had gone and they could actually enjoy themselves, you know. And there's something about the misery and anger of an older man, you know, which is quite common and quite depressing at the same time, you know. And the ability of a man to actually walk into the generous no-self, yeah, beyond midlife, yeah, is one of the great disciplines of a, of a life, yeah, and of a of a male life, you know, that has been so concentrated around this me, this I, that's going to do all of these things, you know, that I am going to be seen for what I am <laughs> my gift. <laughs> and what's disturbing is it takes a kind of spiritual discipline and eldership in order to get through that threshold. <laughs> and in midlife, you need a lot of silence. I often think it's why men get grumpier and angrier, you know, as they get older, is they actually need silence. It's in all of our great traditions and uh, in order to become more fully themselves. And there does seem to be, um, there does seem to be a sexual dimorphism around this, that women don't, don't need it in the same way in order to become more fully themselves. But a man needs uh, space and silence and time in which to become generous to others. Yeah. Women seem, these are all generalities of course, but in general, women seem to be able to shape that generous identity while in the company of others. Of course, women need time by themselves too, and they need silence also, yeah. But they've got more of an ability to shape that generosity in conversation with others. A man needs to step down into a place of silence, spaciousness, yeah, and another, and onto another kind of ground, in order to find that generosity in, inside himself. So, just before we wrap up, and I can almost smell the dinner being cooked next door. 
for the eager listeners who are keen to learn more about your work and and potentially learn more about these tours that you've been that you've been running i know you've got some upcoming in italy and Mm -hmm. new zealand could you speak a little about why you started these tours and just describe briefly what they are for people who who haven't seen your websites already they're extensions of my work really and If I ever run workshops, I never speak all day because I don't think it's good for the human soul to sit so long. So maybe a morning and then then we walk in the afternoon and and maybe I'd talk on the walk. Maybe I wouldn't because perhaps there's plenty to work with from the morning. Mm -hmm. So even when I'm just doing a day lecture or I will try and and try and lead people outside if I can. Yeah. And uh, give people a bit of physical experience of the world. So I do love traveling. I love getting to know places. And so I try to put together a tour that I would want to go on, where I'm treated as an adult, not as a child, where I'm allowed to make mistakes or get lost, you know, and there's not someone with a speaker shouting instructions at me. So, and there's a bit of adventure, you know, you're able to invite the right kind of peril. So usually walking in mountains or rough terrain will take care of a lot of that, you know. So it's a very heady combination to work with the intellect and the imagination in the morning with beauty with poetry and then to work with physical beauty in the afternoon in the walks and then to eat and drink and be companionable in the evenings this is a heady combination do it for seven days or ten days and it really cumulatively be very powerful yeah i I can definitely um vouch for that so so just to wrap up the question that i usually end with which is is kind of shamelessly borrowed from Rilke is the, what are the questions that you feel like you're living? But I wanted to actually to deviate slightly and to ask a question which I posed to Krista Tippett, who I know has mm-hmm. interviewed you before. And and that's what do you think that the questions that we as as humans in the Western world are are asking and trying to live our way into the answers to at the moment? Or perhaps mm. which questions should yeah. we be asking that we're currently not? Yes. I think we're in the process of letting go of the dark side of our inheritance in the West. Yeah, Colonialism, power over religious systems that were reflected hierarchies of our military systems. And we're both trying to reincarnate our rich artistic inheritance and take it into the future. Because the West has so much to offer. And in our political systems at the moment, especially with uh, Donald Trump, who's the representation of everything that is wrong with the masculine psyche, you know, of an immature boy that has never, never grown in fully into the world. Yeah. And uh, I think he's there for us to see all of our sins writ large. You know, I have lines in a poem, sometimes everything has to be inscribed across the heavens so you can find the one line already written inside you. Sometimes everything has to be inscribed across the heavens, so you can find the one line already written inside you. You know, we're having all of our sins writ large, and especially we're coming to the end of, the, of a certain form of masculine dis, uh, um, uh, dispensation, and Trump is the crystallized version <laughs> of many of the things that have been wrong with the Western masculine especially. Yeah. yeah. At the same time, I think he's useful in breaking up the old system, which was doing no one any good. So he's like the miscreant child breaking everything in sight. And it's very difficult to witness. 
it's also a necessary and awful reflection of us, yeah. But sometimes, you know, when you see animals molt, they go through this really ugly period. And sometimes you have to become ugly in order to become something else. <laughs> so we're going, sometimes we make ourselves ugly, you know, to get out of a relationship. Uh, so the other person will go away, you know, and we need to get away from our old selves. So we're going through, I think, a period of molting and uglifications in order to be able to let it go and, and ask for something else. Mm, that's a perfect place to wrap up. I wondered if we could just close with you saying the poem Sweet Darkness, which is something that I've come to love. An invitation to the other horizon. When your eyes are tired, the world is tired also. When your vision is gone, no part of the world can find you. It's time to go into the dark where the night has eyes to recognize its own. There you can be sure you are not beyond love. The dark will be your home tonight. The night will give you a horizon further than you can see. You must learn one thing. You must learn one thing. The world was made to be free in. Give up all the other worlds except the one to which you belong. Sometimes it takes darkness and the sweet confinement of your aloneness to learn anything or anyone that does not bring you alive is too small for you. Anything or anyone that does not bring you alive is too small for you. That last line cuts both ways because sometimes we've made the world too small for us by the way we're holding the conversation. We've made our children too small for us. We've made our spouse too small for us. We've made our political systems too small for us. Yeah. Thank you. Thank After you. you hold the conversation and enlarge the world. <clears throat> Thank you so much. Thank it's you. It's been a pleasure. Lovely. This episode's question for you to ponder is this. Do you have a favourite poem that you carry with you? Or how has poetry shaped your life in some way? Share any thoughts on Twitter or Instagram, tagging me, Johnny M1LLER. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. It would mean a lot to me if you could take a few seconds to open up your podcast app and give Curious Humans a shiny five-star rating. This not only helps more people to find it, but it will help me to get more awesome guests in the future. And if you're not already subscribed, then the Curious Humans newsletter is where I share monthly morsels of interestingness and podcast updates. You can sign up for that at johnny.life. That's J-O-N-N-Y dot life. Thanks for listening.